You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Six Sense. Six Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With SixSense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose SixSense, visit SixSense.com. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank our wonderful sponsors, Harry's, Bloom That, and Sherry's Berries, for helping to make SpyCast possible. You'll hear more about these great companies later, but first, let's meet our guests. So we're joined today by Eva Dillon, who spent 25 years in the magazine publishing business in New York City, including stints at Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Glamour, The New Yorker, and as president of Reader's Digest U.S. She and her six siblings grew up moving around the world for her father's CIA assignments in Berlin, Mexico City, Rome, and New Delhi. She is the author of Spies in the Family, an American spy master, his Russian crown jewel, and the friendship that helped end the Cold War. And that book literally comes out today, if you're listening to this, the day we posted it. Uh, so uh, a new book, fascinating, firsthand account of one of the most extraordinary espionage stories of the Cold War. So welcome, Eva. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you. So I want to start with a lot of authors. Sometimes it's kind of difficult to lock down what inspired them to write their book, you know, whether it's their research or some kind of time in the archives led them to a story no one had ever heard, your inspiration comes from a slightly different source. It does, actually, a, a more familial source, in a sense. Um, when I discovered the relationship my father had with the Cold War's highest-ranking, longest-serving Soviet asset, I wanted primarily to honor General Polyakov and his service to our country, the man that my, ha- my father handled for so many years. You know, he was unique among agents who worked in the United States in that he didn't ask for money or asylum. Rather, he was really motivated to do what he could to lessen the era's very real threat of nuclear war by helping the Americans better interpret the Soviet leadership's thinking and intentions. But more tactically and, frankly, more emotionally motivating factor for me was when I learned that Polyakov's son had immigrated to the United States and was willing to share his story with me. And exclusively gaining access to his memories of his father and account of growing up unknowingly as a family of a spy and comparing that experience with my own inspired me to tell an incredible and fascinating Cold War story, but through the intimate and personal lens of the two families. And that's really how I think my book is different from so many 
of the you know Cold War spy books that I'd read, I had always wanted to know, yeah, but what went on behind the scenes with the families? And that's really was a large motivating factor for me with this story. Yeah, I mean, you found a kindred spirit in somebody that may not have anything in common with you other than the fact that your fathers worked very closely together in intelligence during the Cold War. Exactly. You know, and, and then what they had in common, like you said, was our fathers. When I first met him, it was an, a, a, an emotional reunion because, you know, knowing what his father and my father had been through was a very strong bond between the two of us. We both felt it. Let me ask you about sources. Because anytime anyone writes a book on intelligence, they can be problematic. In this case, it's not all that easy. Many have died, including you know, somewhat both main characters, both of your fathers. Uh, and also, you know, a lot of what was given to us during that time is still not necessarily obsolete. So there's still a lot of, I'm sure you ran into this when in, in the archives, lots and lots of things that are redacted. So how did you go about finding sources to make this book worthwhile? Well, you know, most books like this one about Cold War spies, for instance, are written by journalists or historians, and they write books when they gain access to new troves of information, preferably newly declassified, like as you were saying. Um, but Polyakov's case remains classified and probably will for years. I came at it quite differently. As I conducted my research, I found that there was actually quite a lot of information available on Polyakov open source, but it was scattered. No one had ever collected it in one place, and I spent years hunting it down including various media from Russia and the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union. Of course, though, my most cherished and crucial sources were my interviews with more than 18 of my father's former colleagues and friends. And as you had mentioned, a number of them had passed on, crucial people had passed on. So I really needed to you know, find as many as I could. And uh, interviews with the FBI and most critically and extensively with Alexander Polyakov and his family. Eventually, I found myself with a mountain of material on Polyakov, but I didn't want to write the book that a journalist or a historian would and should write someday. I wanted to write a book by a daughter with the help of a son in all of its newsworthy and human ways. I really wanted to capture the human interest part of this story, how geopolitical events between governments affect real people in profound ways. And I think that's really what sets this book apart is that you are kind of giving the reader an entry point as a, almost a fly on the wall in some of these kind of real-world interactions. I mean, you don't tend to see that in the movies. You don't tend to see that in a lot of books, kind of the family struggles and some of the really insider knowledge of how people are really thinking during this exactly. time. Exactly, exactly. That, that, that was certainly for me one of the more um, both joyous and also heart-wrenching aspects of writing this book because both families – went, of course, through some wonderful times moving around the world and experiencing uh, cultures. But certainly in the case of Polyakov and his family, it was very heart-wrenching. But, uh, but I think it was uh, just something that needed to be done. The story needed to be told. You know, the, 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 ver you know, the version of Polyakov as a hero was a huge motivation for me. Of course, in his own country, he's the opposite. He's considered a traitor. But to us, you know, he served our country for 18 years, and his family suffered for that. And I really was motivated, in a way, to write this book as a gift to the Polyakovs. Well, let's talk about him for, kind of take a step back and, and let the listener in on 
who this man was. I mean, this is somebody who came out of the Second World War as a war hero uh, yep. from a very, uh, you know, martial family of war heroes. And he really gets his first taste of the United States. That should sound familiar to anybody watching the Americans or anything. He's sent by the GRU, Russian or Soviet military intelligence, to run the illegals program here in the United States. Exactly. And uh, it, it is, like you mentioned, the Americans. When, when I tell people about at dinner parties, you know, they're like, oh, you know, did he run around and do jujitsu and stuff dead bodies <laughs> into, uh, into car trunks? I'm like, no, no, it's not what they did. You know, they, they had a very serious mission of stealing, uh, you know, military information and passing it back through Polyakov uh, and back to Moscow center. Um, but, you know, Polyakov, uh, yes, you said he was a war hero. He... He was commissioned into the army one week before Operation Barbarossa launched and was thrown up into the front and uh, was badly wounded but recovered and served out the rest of the uh, war and came home a hero. And um, then he went into, he was um, accepted into the very prestigious Fruins Military Academy and then into the GRU and sent to the United States in 1951 under cover of the Soviet mission to the UN um, Delegation Military Staff Committee. Um, and that, of course, was his cover, and his real job was running the illegals. But, you know, Polyakov was really the rarest of agents. You know, the reason he lasted for as long as he did, 18 years, you know, most people flame out because, uh, you know, most people who become agents, it, it, and not all, there are certainly many uh, other exceptions, but most do lack some some sort of uh, something in their character. You know, they're doing it for money. They're doing it for revenge. Um, uh, they spend too much money and they become, you know, a, a target and, and they flame out. But in the case of Polyakov, he was careful. He was composed. Uh, he did not ask for money and therefore did not flaunt any wealth. You know, he was not a drunk or a womanizer. And he was really true to his heart and his soul when it came to his ideology. And this combination is rare uh, in an officer. Yeah, and, he, um, sorry, yeah, I don't mean to interrupt, yeah. but you, you've already hinted at his motivation several times, but I think you even said that he's considered a traitor uh, in Russia by, by the Soviet Union, but his real motivation was actually to save the Soviet Union. I mean, he was not somebody who wanted to defect. He wasn't somebody that wanted to oh. screw up his country. He just really had a harsh distaste for the leadership there, especially Nikita Khrushchev. Absolutely. I mean, his motivations were interesting and complex. Um, you know, so as I said, you know, he was in the World War II and he, and he survived that and came home as a hero. But at some point after the war, it is believed that he began to view the Soviet leaders as corrupt thugs, you know, um, mocking the sacrifices that the American people had made during the war. Um, and then Khrushchev dismissed General Georgi Zhukov, whom uh, Poyakov considered to be the greatest Russian general of the war. The military adored Zhukov, no one more than Poyakov, who considered the firing an unforgivable insult to him and every veteran of the Great Patriotic War. And Poyakov disliked Zhukov, uh, excuse me, Khrushchev with a passion. You know, he considered him an uncouth bore, prone to emotional outbursts like the infamous, you know, we're turning out missiles like sausages line, which deeply embarrassed him. And then to add insult to injury, Poyakov was in the UN General Assembly in 1960 when Khrushchev famously hit his desk with his shoe. And eventually, 
Polyakov just felt that, Sh- that, that Khrushchev threatened the uneasy peace between the superpowers and wanted to help Americans better interpret Soviet leaders' thinking and motivations in a quest to avoid no- nuclear war. You know, he, he really was very pure ideologically. There's an interesting anecdote in, in the book about how Polyakov met with an American general uh, with the instructions of actually finding out what would be the response to any kind of Soviet move on Berlin. And it sounds as though, of course, there's, there's no way to prove this, that he could have been the impetus for the building of the Berlin Wall somewhat tangentially. Yes. <laughs> well, that whole story starts with the fact that, you know, uh, you know, Polyakov's, uh, you know, uh, beliefs are starting to change, and he wants to um, volunteer his services to, you know, our country. And he asked a fellow um, military mission um somebody in the uh, military staff, the American um, uh, st- uh, counterpart in the UN mission, to introduce him to General um, Edward Neal, uh, O'Neill, who is the leading, um, you know, the commander of the American uh, First Army at Fort Jay on, Gen- on Governor- Governor's Island, and also on the mission. And Paul Fahey, by this time, had become an informant for the FBI um, uh, telling him everything that Polyakov was doing. And uh, so, you know, Paul Fahey went to Ed Moody, the FBI agent who was uh, in charge of Polyakov, and said, huh, you know, he's asked for this meeting uh, to, be, to, be, to talk with um, uh, General Edward o- O'Neill. So they set up a whole um, you know, party and uh, invited Polyakov and his wife uh, and uh, set and you know ran some wires down to the basement and recorded the conversation between um, Polyakov and General uh, O'Neill. And the book actually features the first ever transcript of this tape that hasn't has never been published or heard before of him uh, offering to uh, you know saying that he wanted to uh, offer his services to the CIA. Um, after he made that offer, he also said, by the way, what would be, happen if we invaded Berlin? And this was on August 9th, the, the evening of this cocktail party. And he said, what would happen if we invaded Berlin? And uh, General Neal said, war, all out war. It's totally clear. And uh, Ed Moody, the FBI um, agent, rushed that information down to the White House and the FBI. Uh, and four days later, they started building the wall. Now, I'm sure there were many, many factors and reasons for the building of the wall, and it wouldn't all have been because of what uh, Polyakov asked. But Moody does believe that, you know, they were testing. They were trying to find out many answers. And was that one of them? We don't know, but it could be very possible. Yeah, I mean, a, lo- a lot of Cold War historians point to the building of the wall as kind of a an agreement on both sides that the, 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 the territories were not going to change, that the borders were going to stay the same. And you can see how this last-ditch effort to see what the Americans would say if the Soviets moved on Berlin was a final, all right, you know what, let's just lock down our position right now and build a wall. I, right. It's, uh, yeah, it's impossible to prove, but it certainly makes a lot of sense uh, if you think about the timing of this yes, conversation. absolutely. We'll hear more from Eva in a second, but Mother's Day is this Sunday, and we're going to be inundated with ads on podcasts, on TV, radio, everywhere including here. But there's something you need to know about many of the flower companies advertising today. They cut corners. 
there's hidden fees and surcharges. You might think there's a $30 deal, but if all the stuff they tack on, it turns into a $60 ripoff. Plus, what you see isn't what you get. Sometimes, because of Mother's Day and there's a rush for roses, they might even run out of roses and they'll substitute carnations or other flowers that not what you ordered. The biggest issue is they're old flowers that are picked weeks ago. They bring them in from other countries, from other continents. By the time they get to you, they've been around forever. Many of the times, they never open or they open but die right away. And they just kind of shove them in a box. The arrangement comes from a warehouse. Look, Mother's Day is incredibly busy. There's a lot of people making orders, so they get essentially an assembly line of people just kind of sticking flowers in a box. It's not done by a designer. It's done by somebody making minimum wage. It, your mom is going to say that she loved your gift no matter how bad and sad and pathetic it might be. But don't make your mom lie and say she loved your flowers. Use Bloom That, the flower company that doesn't cut corners. Bloom That flowers are handcrafted. They're arranged by a designer not by just some minimum wage guy. They're beautiful flowers she would buy for herself. They're fresh. They're picked right before you order so they last forever. They're not being shipped from another continent. They're being picked right near where the Bloom That headquarters is. And so why Bloom That? Well, each bouquet is designed and handcrafted, and what you see is exactly what you get. And it comes with an elegant burlap wrap to make an amazing first impression. Here we're talking boutique quality bouquet, but value price. Now, Look, I've ordered a lot of flowers in my day, a combination of trying to be nice. You know, I've been married almost 11 years. Uh, I've, my, my mom still around. Uh, a lot of times trying to be nice. Other times, I've been need to make up for doing something stupid. But either way, I know what flowers look like when you order them online. And I can tell you that I immediately noticed the difference between what I used before and Bloom That. These are gorgeous. They're obviously fresh flowers and beautiful packaging. So here's how to get this for your mom or maybe even for yourself because Bloom That is offering a great deal. The best price on gorgeous bouquet just picked, hand designed, Instagram ready, plus a premium designer vase that costs everyone else about $15, plus handmade caramel treats, normally $10, but also free for our listeners. That's a huge savings, about $25, and it's the best deal they're offering. But you only get this deal if you go to our page, bloomthat.com slash spycast. That's B-L-O-O-M-T-H-A-T dot com slash spycast and find the perfect handcrafted designer flowers. You'll automatically get the free premium designer vase and caramel treats, a $25 value. Mother's Day is this week. Take two minutes and really blow her away. Again, it's bloomthat.com slash spycast for premium design bouquet, free vase and treats. Don't wait. This amazing offer won't last and it's only available to our listeners if you go to bloomthat.com slash spycast. Let's just take another step back and, and shift to the other main character of this book, which is your father, Paul Dillon. Uh, he is a career CIA officer. Um, he started working with refugees right after the war with the idea of sending them back in uh, into the Soviet Union to try to be um, eyes and ears on the ground. Um, what I thought was interesting for, for people out there that may not know, this wasn't just grab people and send them back in. There was full training involved. Uh, in areas they would expect it to know, right? The idea is if you're going in and pretending that you're a soldier who just got out of the war and you're in a certain army unit and you're from a certain area, just like if you're pretending you're a New Yorker, you better know who starts at first base for the Yankees. You better know who your commander was in your army unit. These are things that they had to learn and be trained to understand. Absolutely. You know, that's they very carefully vetted the, the refugees that uh, came into 
you know, out of the Soviet Union, the Soviet bloc, and into these refugee centers to find people who would be qualified uh, and be willing to to go do something as dangerous as being, you know, dropped back into their own country as a spy, especially given the the, the era and what was going on. And my father, that was his first um, CIA job, actually. Um, you know, he had just been trained himself in a lot of these tactics of surveillance and, and you know, combat and whatnot. And so he would take on teams of these refugees and train them. And they were very um, intense uh, training times. You know, they, they trained together for three months. They, they uh, uh, practiced parachute jumping uh, from, a, uh, from an old Nazi Air Force uh, hangar in Kaufbüren, which was about a half an hour away from where my parents were living in Kempton near Munich. And um, they trained them in all kinds of, of you know, information for, for you know, evasion, escape, you know, uh, all the various ways that they could be good, um, you know, informants once they were dropped back in. And, uh, and so the issue, though, was that my father would train these teams and then would send them off and... Uh, and send them off with radios and packs and information and with instructions to send back a Morse code to uh, inform them that they had landed safely and everything was going well. Only one after another after another were launched and never heard from. And this had to have been extremely stressful for my father and the other you know, uh, officers who were doing the same kind of training. Um, and, you know, months went by and they would send off more and more of these teams and you know they never did know why until finally it became clear years later uh what that um kim philby the infamous british spy who had been working for uh, the soviets for over 15 years at that point you know had actually been working closely with james angleton who was the CIA counterintelligence chief and they were working together on these programs sending their own teams back behind the Soviet curtain, uh, usually, you know, by being parachuted in. And Angleton was uh, giving all the parachute coordinates and places of, of drops and whatnot to Kim Philby, who just as quickly was giving them then to the KGB. And it turned out that every single one of my father's teams were sh- shot on the spot as soon as they were dropped. And, uh, you yeah. know, that is, <laughs> that is the true cost, uh, the human cost of a Cold War, you know. Uh, the, what agents go through. Um, we may not, may not be in open warfare, but certainly there are very serious human costs, and that was what was happening there um, with the program that was called Red Sox. It was, according to Phil, because of Philby, at least 50 teams were compromised, just yes. one after yes. the other sent in. Yes. Um, and a lot of people don't, again, think about that. They're like, oh, Philby gave him some secrets. He wasn't a very good guy, but you know, no Americans died. But you know, we're talking dozens and dozens and dozens of people who are willing to work for us were killed Absolutely. because of that. Yeah. Uh, a couple of years ago, a, a very interesting book came out about the book, the uh, about a book about a book, Doctor Zhivago, uh, which was used by CIA as a very uh, ingenious uh, psychological operation uh, mission against the Soviets during the war, essentially smuggling in Russian language copies of that book after it was banned in the Soviet Union. And your father was intimately involved in this. Yes, absolutely. That was a great book, by the way. And uh, yes, um, what, we, what, what I did find out in my research, um, 
And it started with me looking through family pictures and seeing a, a picture of my father in a suit and tie standing in front of the Soviet pavilion at the Brussels World Fair in 1958. And that was the first World Fair since, the, since World War II. And I was curious about, you know, what was dad doing there in a suit? Um, that, that looked like working to me, not as, you know, a, a vacation, because they would obviously go around on vacations all over Europe. And I asked around, and, and somebody said, oh, your father, surely what he was doing there was, you know, as you said, uh, you know, he was sent to Brussels to hand out copies of Boris Pasternak's Dr. Shivago. It had been banned in Russia for its individualistic tone and criticism of Stalinism and collectivism and the Great Purge. And the CIA picked up on Dr. Shivago's potential um, in the ideological war to, uh, against the Soviets. Um, and so my father would give, uh, they, were, they were giving them out to the fair uh, goers. 14,000 of them uh, were coming in from the Soviet Union. And the idea was to hand out these Russian versions of the book and let them smuggle them back into the Soviet Union so that citizens could read work um, of one of their own literary masters that reflected the truth about their lives under communist oppression. So that was kind of cool finding out that's what my dad was doing there in that picture. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, and it sounds like your father worked for several years in Berlin recruiting agents before the wall went up. Uh, there's an interesting story also in the book about how your father was actually told from one of his assets about the wall going up in advance. And uh, this was poo-pooed by a man you already mentioned that we'll talk a lot more about later. Yes. And that's uh, Angleton, uh, who had – I mean the CIA had an opportunity to find out about the wall going up in advance. Uh, but it was you know, shut down before it got to high levels by Angleton. I think the CIA had an opportunity to learn an awful lot about what, what was going on with the Soviet Union, but it was shut down by um, Angleton. And indeed, um, this was one small example of that where, um, you know, just a, couple, a few weeks before the wall went up, a defector coming through uh, was debriefed by my father and a, and a couple of other people on the team. They said, you know, I've got the plan, and it's that they're going to build this big wall. And that information went back to Langley, to, uh, to James Angleton, the, uh, the CIA counterintelligence chief. And he um, you know, had, has a belief that all Soviets, um, you know, all Soviets that are coming over with information are plants or provocations and, and nothing is to be believed. And he waved them off. He said, let the guy go. We don't want to hear his story. And two weeks later, the wall goes up. You know, right. and uh, I think I think a lot of people, a lot of the case officers who were there at the time. I mean, Berlin was one of the biggest um, CIA bases in the world at that time, given the activity that was going on there. And uh, they had 180 uh, case officers, and and one of the other case officers that I interviewed said, "Oh my God, you know, when the wall went up." We were like, oh, my God, there are 180 of us here, and none of us knew the wall was going up. We're all going to get fired because 180 case officers didn't know about the wall going up. You know, So, yeah, it was unfortunate but that some of these um, internecine wars you know, would, would you know, block very, very crucial information that could have been very helpful. And, and that problem of you know, the belief that all Soviet um, defectors were plants and provocations was – you know, strung out across a good 10 years hampering the CIA. Yeah, I mean, while we, I, mean, I was going to do this a little bit later, but let's talk Angleton a little bit because this is a good time to kind of segue into that. Uh, 
there's a lot of reasons that he kind of goes off the deep end. And Philby, as you've already mentioned, is a big one of them. But there was also another Soviet defector, let's put quotes around that, uh, Golitsyn, who turns out to be really the worst case scenario for somebody like Angleton, who's already thinking that direction. Absolutely. Um, Golitsyn knocks on the door of the CIA station uh, manager in Helsinki and asks for asylum. And he comes over in 1961. And he comes over um, with tales of the KGB's superhuman effectiveness at deceiving Americans across the board. Um, You know, that, that, that every... Uh, every you know uh, defector after him is part of a great big you know uh, plot, and um, this claim struck perfectly with Angleton's ever more paranoid psyche. You know, uh, when when Angleton learned that his best friend Kim Philby, who he had bonded with and shared and learned so much, had been a spy, he just started believing that everybody else could be. And here comes Golitsyn saying, you know, in fact, yes, there's this great big huge spy plot and it's aimed at America and it's happening all around you. And Angleton's obsessions resulted in attacks on the bona fides of all the post-Golitsyn Soviet defectors and sources. And the harm that this did to American efforts to understand and counter Soviet powers was really incalculable. Yeah, it was a disaster for U.S. national security. disaster, absolutely. And, And somehow your father's actually able to avoid a lot of this. Uh, where other people in the Great Mole Hunt, kind of their careers went down in flames because Angleton kind of set his sights on them. Your father, fortunately, was able to kind of bounce around to places where maybe Angleton didn't have his sights set. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, if you were out of the country, um, he he didn't he, he wasn't as close to being able to analyze you. I think other people who worked, uh, you know, at headquarters more, you know, got the rat of his suspicions a bit more, you know. So my father would sort of pack up the family and, and accept any and all offers to get out of town. And it, I think it really helped because, you know, he could have been someone they, they might have targeted because he spoke fluent Russian and uh, he was in the Soviet division and he handled lots of Soviet defectors. Um, but for some reason he was lucky. Uh, you know, it might have been that, you know, he was very... Catholic and uh, uh, and apparently the nickname around the office for him among people who knew him was Father Paul <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I don't know if you know if there was sort of this uh, halo around him that made someone like Angleton not want to believe that he could possibly be the mole um, but yes he was very lucky and we were out of town a lot you know we were in other postings right. Let's walk back a little bit and talk a little bit more about Polikoff pre-CIA, before your father gets involved. Because when he first reaches out to the United States, he, he wants to work with CIA. But at the time, he's in the United States. And so the organization that takes him on at first is not the agency. It's actually the FBI. Yes, yes. Well, when he went to uh, General O'Neill saying that he wanted to volunteer, he specifically asked to volunteer with the CIA. Um, and they, uh, they said, okay, let us look into that. So, uh, but of course, you know, uh, jurisdiction, intelligence jurisdic- jurisdiction in the United States is the FBI's, it's not the CIA's. Um, but they do not open up to him and say, okay, actually we're sending you an FBI guy. They pretend and they send in uh, a, a uh, 
CIA guy or an FBI guy pretending to be a CIA guy, which is really pretty funny. Yeah. Um, I personally believe Polyakov probably knew it all along because he was a very smart <laughs> and intuitive person. But uh, but they did c- uh, continue to play that ruse. They sent John Maybe, um, and John Maybe shows up at the second party uh, being held at General O'Neill's house on Governor's Island, and. Uh, they agree to meet later on that evening at Columbus Circle in New York. Uh, and there they meet, and John maybe says, I need to have proof of your bona fides. I need the names of your cryptographers. And Polyakov knows that's, you know, he's an astute intelligence um, person himself, and he knows that's what he needs. And they meet again a week later at Grant's tomb and hands over the names of the cryptop- cryptographers. And uh, the FBI is just elated. They're over the top because they've never really had a real penetration of, uh, you know, the GRU before, and a high-level one at this one because at this point he was a colonel, you know, with access to all kinds of, you know, um, you know, classified and secret material and the knowledge of all of the illegals uh, right. on the East Coast, which he does then uh, hand over to them, you know, all, all, all the names of all the illegals, but they do make an agreement not to roll them up all at once because then it'll be obvious that they have a, you know, they have somebody inside working on it. So they didn't roll them all up. The FBI already knew the names of the cryptographers. This wasn't something that they were trying to get new information about. But in essence, this is a test to see if Polykov is above board because if he wasn't, it was just a dangle trying to get people in trouble. There's no way he would have handed over the names of the real names of the cryptographers. And that's exactly right. And when he came back with the real names of the cryptographers, the FBI was over the moon, uh, celebrating, backslapping, uh, goes all the way up to um, J. Edgar Hoover uh, because they knew he was real. Uh, and you know he would not have handed over the real names. Those are some of the most that's most closely held information that any residentura wants to keep is the cryptographers. And so it was a huge, uh, uh, you know, and a very exciting, um, you know, showing that he really, really was the real deal and was willing to and was not a dangle. Well, other than passing along information about all the illegals on the East Coast and a lot of tradecraft information things like secret inks and codes and organizational structure. One thing I thought was really kind of funny, well, you know, probably a, not funny for the FBI at all, but Polikoff told them that the GRU and the KGB were fully monitoring FBI communications, had totally – nothing the FBI ever did was not completely monitored by Soviet intelligence. Yes, absolutely, and they were completely shocked, which was shocking to me because you would have thought by then they would have been on – top of any kind of communications and radio activity that was going on there. But in fact, the, uh, the KGB had figured out how to monitor the radio airwaves of all the FBI and was listening to everything, all their chatter uh, going back and forth. And so the FBI, would, they were always very impressed with how Polyakov could sort of outmaneuver them you know, obviously they were tailing him everywhere he went, and, and um, he had this this blue Ford Fairlane, um, and they would follow him around, but he'd be able to sort of get through the light or, or get away, and they could never quite figure out how he always seemed to know. Um, and then eventually, once 
Polyakov started working with the FBI, he told them, you know, that, um, that you know, we've been listening to you forever, you know, for the longest time. And I think they were very embarrassed and they changed all of their, you know, uh, operational approaches to everything. Um, and, uh, and, and, and as a result, you know, a, a lot of stuff changed for that reason. But, um, but I, I thought it was funny that they didn't know about it in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's one of these things that you look at and maybe it permanently changed the way the FBI did counterintelligence, just having that knowledge about how effective the Soviets were at getting around the FBI had to have been a game changer. I, I, I can imagine Hoover was not all that happy to hear stuff like that. No, no, I'm sure Hoover wasn't. <laughs> you know, and then, and then they, had, they had to reduce themselves to tricks in order to stay on top of of uh, Polyakov, you know, he'd, he'd get a, he'd slip away in his car and they'd lose him. And uh, uh, Ed Moody, the FBI agent who followed him for the longest period of time for during his his two tours to uh, New York, would when given the opportunity, he would drop a rolled up condom into the gas tank, and within a few minutes, it would float down into the uh, feed line and stall the car, and they could catch up. And of course, they delighted in you know, tr- you know, traumatizing Polyakov, uh, and they would break his taillight so they could see him at night and whatnot. And he eventually complained to the UN security people and said, hey, I am officially a diplomat, you know, and these people are hassling me. And uh, he actually got them, you know, he got someone to come back to the FBI and say, stop hassling him so much. Yeah. <laughs> Let me pause for a quick minute to tell you more about Harry's. For decades, one big razor company has relentlessly increased prices and reaped immense profits at the expense of its customers. So Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were fed up with getting ripped off, started Harry's to fix shaving. Harry's knew there was only one way to ensure quality. They bought their own blade factory. By taking less profit and selling directly to you over the internet, Harry's offers their blades at half the price. We're talking just $2 a blade compared to the $4 or more you'll pay at the drugstore. Look, Everyone tells you they have the best products. You get inundated with ads across all mediums saying this product or that product is the best. You, the listener, are probably a lot like me. You're smart. You're educated, refined. You're ravishingly good-looking. Did I miss anything? Right? We don't fall for silly ads promising things that just aren't true. That's why I want to tell you more about how Harry's manufactures their razors. And this is what I find absolutely the coolest thing about them. They bought a German factory which means they own the entire process from grinding high-grade steel to sending razors to your door. That means they can continue to innovate to make your shave even better. Their team in Germany has been grinding high-grade steel into some of the world's sharpest blades since 1920. Today, more than 400 German engineers, designers, craftsmen, and production workers build and operate sophisticated custom equipment that produces millions of precision blades every year. What this means is for you is that their blades will get even better. Your shave will get even better. They'll listen to your feedback of what makes a great shave and use their expertise to develop products that deliver you that experience. So now you can try Harry's for free. Harry's is so confident you'll love their blades. They're giving you their trial set for free. All you have to do is cover the $3 shipping. Your trial set will include a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision engineer blades with lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a traveling blade cover. That's a $13 value for you to try. So stop messing around and get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your free trial offer, $13 value for free, just cover shipping. 
To get this free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel, go to harrys.com slash spycast right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com slash spycast. So in almost a perfect scenario, Polikov is actually deployed back to Moscow, which gives the U.S., in this case the FBI and the CIA, an agent in place inside a denied area. But because they moved back to Moscow, the FBI couldn't run him alone anymore. And this is where the CIA has to get brought into the story. Yes, exactly. So they have to go to the CIA and say, um, uh, you know, we, we need your help on this. But and it was one of the first times that they ever did anything joint because they've never, you know, they've never had a shared agent before. Um, and so they worked together with the CIA to uh, put together the communication plans and the, the dead drop sites and the pickup sites for anything, uh, you know, the signal and dead drop sites in, in uh, Moscow. But the FBI would still create and place the messaging. Um, and uh, so one of the ways they did that, and they worked this out with Toyokov before he left, was to... Uh, put messages into the New York Times personal ad section, and um, you, know, uh, you know there would be you know the and they would be placed by Moody. So the drop sites meant would be uh, men's names: Art, Bob, Charles. The signal sites were women's names: Betty, Clara. Um, uh, and the New York Times required that Ed Moody's full name and address appear on the <laughs> ad. So. Even the FBI engaged in a high-risk clandestine operation had to bow to the rules of the New York Times, which is very funny. And they would run these ads uh, for multiple days in case, you know, somebody, you know, in case the office didn't get uh, the paper on a given day. And the New York um, ad editor started getting suspicious about, you know, what, what are all these ads that are running for 10 days? And he called Moody down to his office and said, you know, what's going on here? And Moody shows him his ID and says, well, actually, it's an FBI operation. And the, you know, the editor is like, yeah. And he says, you can call my boss if you like. And he did call the boss. And only then did they allow him to continue to run the ad. So again, <laughs> the New York Times always very careful uh, about their sources. Um, and that's how they communicated. And, and one of the first dead drops that uh, Polyakov made uh, in uh, Moscow in 1962, when he had, uh, had returned from from uh, uh, New York, was in a subway system on a subway bench in a Band-Aid with uh, that had a microfilm piece, and uh, he, you know, with his hand, he just kind of stuck it to the bottom of the of the bench, and the CIA was, you know, told ahead of time that that's where it was going to be, so he left his signals drop, and they picked it up, and it was. A huge bonanza, especially for the FBI, because it revealed um, four and five, actually, major spies working in the U.S. Um, that the FBI could pick up. You know, Jack Dunlop, who was an Army sergeant, William Whalen, a Pentagon staff officer, Nelson Drummond, a Navy clerk, Herbert Bockenhaupt in the Air Force, and also a British um, officer with the British uh, Ministry Aviation, Frank Bossard, who had sent pictures to the GRU, and then um, uh, Poyakov took pictures of his pictures and sent them back, and as a result, they were able to identify him. So it was a huge, you know, find for them of people who were informing, you know, on the Americans to the Soviets. It doesn't get any better. I mean, Polikov is assigned to the American division back 
at GRU in Moscow. Essentially, he's a head of the or assigned to the division that runs all these spies exactly. inside the United States. Exactly. It, it didn't exactly. it didn't take long though. This is a time period you talk about 1962, where a very prominent Soviet spy or a spy who was Soviet officer spying for the United States and the British was rounded up and arrested and then executed. And this is, of course, Ole Penkovsky in the response to the Cuban Missile Crisis. That had to not feel good if you're Polyakov at this point. Oh, my God. I mean, that was huge. You know, he obviously, you know, was was very uh, moved by that and very careful by that. And he had always told both his FBI and his CIA, um, you know, handlers, if for some reason I go dark, don't come looking for me. Don't hassle me. Don't send me. It's very dangerous. I'll be back in touch with you. And um, so after Oleg Pankowski, who of course was the agent who uh, gave most of the information to the Kennedy administration during the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, he was caught and executed. Uh, so Polyakov went dark. And uh, the intelligence agencies never want their agents to be dark. Yes. <laughs> you know, they want the information. They wanted to keep talking. So Moody was, uh, you know, told to keep sending the various New York Times ads. Um, and he would send ad after ad after ad, and Polyakov would just ignore them. But eventually, Polyakov did leave a signal and filled a drop in Gorky Park. Um, and left his signal and then waited to, you know, get confirmation that the drop had been picked up, but he didn't get confirmation and he didn't get it 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 for eight weeks, which of course, as you can imagine, had to have been extremely stressful and worrisome to Polyakov because what that could have meant the KGB had found it, they were waiting for him to come back and try to pick it up. Um, it, it could have been, you know, anything, but it turned out to be that Angleton was, you know, still so much believing that Polyakov was a plant and a provocation, instructed the CIA Moscow station not to pick it up because he feared it was fake. And uh, in the meantime, Ed Moody, his uh, stalwart uh, FBI uh, supporter, because he felt very close to Polyakov and believed in him, in memos that he shared with me during, you know, all of our sourcing. Um, you know, just showed how he was kind of ple was pleading with the CIA to say, come on, this guy is real, you know, don't do this to him. And eventually they do pick up the, um, the drop eight weeks later, uh, and then they run an ad to tell him that they picked it up, but they couldn't help themselves by saying, hey, but you never picked up the present at Betty, which of course with the signal site basically saying you didn't leave a, a, a message that you had left a drop, which which Moody doesn't think was true. So, you know, there were, there were a lot of little battles going right. on here, you know, and of course, Polyakov didn't think, you know, Polyakov knew he had. And so, you know, I think it was difficult between the, it's sort of like the turf wars of today, you know, there's, <laughs> you have the turf wars and they get messed up because people have different agendas. It does say a lot for Polyakov that he stuck it out because there was so much going against him doing this, how frustrating it must have been for him to watch all the, you know, infighting within the United States and them kind of treating him, you know, certainly from the CIA perspective as a, uh, as a fake, uh, uh, fake agent in the, you know, kind of the Keystone cops FBI where 
they're pretending there wasn't a signal, and of course there was, and and later on. Uh, they do what he says not to do, and they try to hunt him down. A lot of these things would have made a lesser man just walk away. Absolutely, absolutely. I think I think that's why he was so extraordinary. You know, he, um, like you said, there were just so many things. Even when they were arresting the illegals, finally, a couple of years after he had returned to Moscow, given given giving him enough time so that he wouldn't look suspicious with the illegals that were being arrested, but. Um, Carlo Tuomi, uh, who had been the Finnish illegal that he trained and was one of their most high-profile illegals, who had also been turned, uh, gave up Polyakov's name, and it, and it appears in the New York Times, you know, as, <laughs> as, as an agent. And, you know, he did. He, he, he had to bear a lot, and still he stuck it through. And, 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 and part of what I think was extraordinary about him is that you know, we'll probably talk about some of this later as well, but there were so many times when things were going against him. You know, the Americans didn't actually believe in him. The Americans put print his name in the newspaper. Later on, there are some breaches to his security in the, in the American press. And yet the Soviets continue to have complete faith in him. So he had an extraordinary personality in that he was able to engender trust you know, despite all these uh, things that would have felled a lesser man, for sure. Right. Well, I, I want to leave some for the reader, but I want to skip ahead to New Delhi, because I think this is where kind of the two families come together and the two stories really intersect. Um, he goes, you know, lots of different, your father goes from Mexico City to other places. Polyakov goes to Burma, back to Moscow. But eventually everybody, and I say everybody, the Dillon family and the Polyakov family, are sent to New Delhi, India, uh, when Polikov is promoted to major general, which means he has ridiculous amounts of secrets available Absolutely. to him. He's at the very highest level. You and your family are there as well. And essentially, your father was sent in with the singular job of running Polikov for CIA. Yes. And that was a very unusual um post for a case officer normally normally you'd come in and be trying to run many but he was Poyakov was so prolific and his and his um, information was so valuable that you know they wanted to send in one person who could really focus on it and it's also I think interesting to note that the handlers who had handled him up until the time that my father did were controlled by Angleton. He was able to choose ho who those handlers would be, and when they came to work with him, they were all black hats. They were all actually against the idea of what he was trying to do because they didn't believe in it. My father was the first handler sent to work with Poyakov who was not a black hat. Um, he, my father was really kind of an extraordinary man, and they um, developed a very... Um, a very trusting friendship relationship. You know, the most important thing between an asset and a, and a handler is trust. Right. And my father engendered trust in everyone he knew because he saw the dignity in all people, and people felt that from him. You know, he attended a Jesuit high school and Jesuit Boston College where he studied philosophy and theology and Greek and Latin. He had a, a great love of languages, which is why he took up Russian so, so easily. And he was influenced, I think, by the Jesuits free-thinking education platform, which opened his mind to peoples of all types and cultures. And his, and, and his character building in him was also part of the Jesuits' vow of poverty, which can be interpreted as a 
poverty of self, that you were not better than any other person. You know, he trusted you and you trusted him. Everybody felt that his assets trusted him. Polyakov trusted him. And as a, as a, you know, and as a, you know, response to that, because of my father's nature, the level of the reporting after he got there was just, you know, uh, some of the most incredible reporting that they got out of him. You know, it was the pinnacle of, you know, this great relationship and the fact that he was a general, you know, um, the intelligence was astonishing in its importance and details. You know, by dint of, of by dint of, of Polyakov's rank, his years of service, his war heroism, and he was now a member of the GRU's elite inner circle. He had access to the highest level of Soviet war planning and strategy and military philosophy. And as a senior party activist, he was trusted with the secret Ministry of Foreign Affairs material and party directives. You know, he was a, a member of the old boy network by now with access to critical state secrets. Well, one of these was the, the journal Military Thought, which was there was a declassified version, but he had access to the super classified version, which told the Americans kind of the inner thinking of the Soviet high command, everything from their assessment of nuclear war to the impact, and this is my field, the impact of the spying on technology, the fact that something you say in the book, like 5,000 programs within the Soviet Union use Western technology that had been stolen during the Cold War? Oh, it was amazing. It was, and that was another one of, of Polyakov's great contributions was opening up, you know, informing the Americans how much of their military technology was being stolen. You know, the, these orders were issued annually by the military industrial, uh, the Soviet Military Industrial Commission, and they were very, very good at it. And uh, American analysts at the times were startled by the quantity and the knowledge of classified American systems. And so as a result of Polyakov, you know, informing the Americans on how much was actually being sold, they, uh, you know, they, they closely, uh, you know, sealed up a lot of the information on Western military technology so it couldn't be stolen anymore. It was really incredible. And, you know, I think, you know, as you said, he, he offered military thought and and all kinds of important documents. And by reading all the super-secret documents that Polyakov slipped to the Americans, U.S. military experts came to understand that Russians' assessment of nuclear war was not much different from their own. Polyakov's intelligence showed that Soviet military leaders were as worried as their American counterparts were, that they were not, in fact, crazy warmongers. Well, and that was the perception before that, right? They, they you know, they're going to exactly. fight a war and win a war, and... And now everyone is just as worried about this. Exactly. They really did believe that the uh, Soviets, you know, would and were ready and, you know, could at any moment use those weapons. And Polyakov comes in and says, uh, no, not really. They're quite scared. And it completely changed the whole paradigm and diffused tensions. And it made it so that the Kremlin could not uh, substantially threaten America and her allies because you know, the Americans knew the truth behind it, right. you know, and, and it really did help diffuse tensions. What, what I thought was fantastic and was a really fun part of the book was how your father and Polyakov were able to communicate out in the open, how they were able to spend a lot of time with each other right under the watchful eye of the KGB and the GRU. Well, it, yeah. Uh, it, yeah. Go ahead. No, it's just a great story. It's just a wonderful well, yeah. way well, of doing it. Well, it's because, um, you know, and I, and I think this was probably a... a tool used on occasion with other assets and handlers, but the CIA 
set up this useful ruse by, uh, quote-unquote, allowing Polyakov to recruit my father as a developmental contact. And so Polyakov, you know, reported to Moscow that he was attempting to engage an American embassy official whom he'd met at a number of uh, diplomatic functions, and they both enjoyed hunting and fishing. And the center was encouraged and gave my father a code name, Plaid. I couldn't believe my, my father had a code name, <laughs> which was Plaid. Um, and as a result of this, because you know they had given Poyakov permission to recruit my father, they could meet relatively out in the open. They would, you know, go out to the Yamuna River and fishing and hunting. And we kids laugh because we're pretty sure that Dad never once shot a rifle. You know, he was not a hunter. You know, his quarry was information. <laughs> but um, but as a result. You know, uh, they were able to, to, to meet out in the open. And uh, one evening, um, I was already back in college at this time, so the story comes through my brothers um, in, in India. And my mother says to them, you know, tonight a very important Russian diplomat is coming over uh, to uh, visit with Dad, and they're going to be talking about hunting and fishing, and they're going to go into the den so please don't disturb them. But of course, my brothers were all curious, and they came down to the foyer when he came in. There was standing the a Russian general in in his full uniform with his big military hat, and 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 we laughed because he's kind of smiling as he looks down at our 1970s, you know, uh, my brothers with their long hair and their tie-dye T-shirts and everything. And he gives them each a piece of candy, and they go into the den and they lock the door. And my brother says, "Wow, a Russian general! You don't see one of those every day." <laughs> Well, that yeah. and that, that actually works out for a while, but unfortunately, your father gets outed when you're in New Delhi. This is a time when many, many, many CIA officers get outed, all because of one disgruntled former employee decides to write a book. Yes, we were. We I was 17, and uh, it was the summer of 1975, and I was 17. And a newspaper article, you know, uh, identified my father as a CIA officer. And, um, uh, you know, my six brothers and sisters had always been told that he was a State Department employee. And that article from the uh, Times of India, which is the American, the, the English-speaking paper from there, basically was reporting on the newly published uh, uh, book, which would probably be familiar to many of your podcast listeners, uh, in, inside the company CIA Diary by the former uh, CIA case officer Philip Agee, in which he outed uh, hundreds of uh, CIA operations around the world and 250 identities of covert officers around the world, including my father's, for whom he had worked in Mexico seven years earlier. And that is how we found out that my father was in the CIA. You know, we had always thought he was a foreign service officer, and that was our big reveal. And there's scuttlebutt that your dad may have fired Agee from Mexico City, or do you think he just resigned and wanted to move on with his life? Well, in A.G.'s book, he says he resigned and wanted to get out of there, but, you know, when you go around and talk to all the people from those times, a lot of them say, nah, nah, that's not what happened. He was problematic, he had issues, um, you know, he, you know he, was, he was kind of a troublemaker, you know. What the truth is, and, and, and somebody said your dad fired him, but the truth is, who knows? You know, because so many of these guys are gone, and I think, you know, in any office you want you want to put your best face forward. So I don't know which the truth is, but uh, 
but I kind of believe he was fired just because of, you know, how many people told me that he was kind of a troublemaker. Well, regardless of, of why he left, because of your father being outed, he couldn't meet on a day-to-day basis with Polyakov anymore. Uh, it's had to go somewhat underground. And this is when an interesting communication technology comes into play for the very first time. And you, you, you highlight it in your book. And this is the unique system. Yes, yes. Oh, the unique was amazing. You know, it, it, uh, you know, Polyakov was going to be returning to Moscow from Delhi in 1976. And, of course, when you're in Moscow, it's KGB infested. You know, using the regular dead drops is just dangerous. And because Polyakov was the highest-ranking Soviet intelligence officer in the history of the U.S. government, you know, the Langley team felt obligated to find a more secure way of communicating than the risky dead drop systems they'd used for years. So they went to the Langley support team and made a request to their technical support component. They wanted something very revolutionary, a short-range, high-speed, two-way communications device that encrypted and transmitted information and was small enough to fit in a pocket. But the agency's Office of Technical Service kind of balked. You know, they were pointing out that there had never been any technology like it. It didn't exist. You remember, it's 1974. It would be 20 years before instant text messaging devices could be, you know, were introduced to the public. But undeterred, the Langley team enlisted the help of an outside scientific contractor and working against the clock, they had two years before Polycall would be returning to Moscow, they produced a prototype, a transceiver that had no precedent in either the espionage or civilian world, uh, worlds. And it was suitably, suitably codenamed Unique. There was nothing like it out there. Um, and some compared it to the technical leap equivalent to the telephone in public communications. But um, Unique was developed specifically for Poyakov and was a stunning breakthrough in communication technology. It was a transmitter and a receiver. It was a two-way system small enough to fit in a pocket. It had a uh, tiny Cyrillic script keyboard um, that you know, you'd know you enter information in with a stylus. And it automatically encrypted encrypt, encrypted messages um, and then send, sending radio uh, the sending radius was about a thousand feet and it transmitted messages in bursts of 2.6 seconds and some people say it was possibly the world's first text message exchanges and Polyakov was blown away he it, for, for one of the first times he, you know, he was always a technology person who sometimes would criticize America's uh, you know, too fancy gear, like it was so fancy it wouldn't work. He sometimes preferred his own basic gear. But when he got unique, he finally, he said, this is impressive. And he loved it. Did I mention that Mother's Day is this weekend? Sherry's Berries is offering huge, freshly dipped strawberries starting at just nineteen ninety nine plus shipping. And right now you can double the berries for just $10 more. Pick your delivery date, and these berries are guaranteed to arrive fresh and delicious or your money back. Let's talk bottom line. You may think you've seen gourmet dipped strawberries before, but you've never seen anything like these. And look, this is the copy, but I'm not messing with you guys. I've ordered dipped strawberries before, but we're talking ridiculously sized strawberries. Sherry's berries are huge, sweet, juicy, and covered in decadent toppings. Chocolate chips, chopped nuts, white milk, and dark chocolatey goodness. Sherry's Berries is the unexpected gift that will put a smile on any mom's face. You can surprise your mom with Sherry's Berries at her office or workplace, but I wouldn't advise it. Send it to her house. Send it specially made to where no one else can touch it. 
They sent Sherry's berries here to the office. I ate one berry. It was just mauled by everybody else in the office. I'd love to tell you how good all their flavors were, but I had to order a second set just to try the different stuff. The original one, I only got one stinking berry out of. It was the size of a softball, but it was a really, really good berry. So send it to her house. Don't make mom have to punch out her coworkers to keep her Sherry's berries. Now, the only way to get this amazing berries deal starting at $19.99 is to visit berries.com. Click on the microphone in the top right corner and use our code SPYCAST. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com and code SPYCAST when you click on the mic. This amazing deal won't last long, and Mother's Day is this weekend. So be sure to order now. Click on the microphone in the top right corner at berries.com and use our code SPYCAST. So I want to we'll, we'll, wrap up the, uh, the Polyakov story in a second, but I want to take a quick little tangent because there's a really fun story. I mean, fun because me, I'm a kind of a tech nerd, and I'm also an airplane nerd. Uh, so there's a great little aside here about another relatively famous spy, a Soviet uh, Air Force officer this time, who uh, kind of appeared in your life a little bit. Uh, although you thought he was Viktor Schmidt and he was East German, he was really somebody entirely different. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think a lot of people rem- remember in 17, 1976 when a Soviet pilot defected from Siberia with the super-secret MiG-25 Foxback jet, um, flying under radar across the Sea of Japan and landed on the northern Japanese island of Hokkaido. And the Soviet uh, MiG-25 Foxback was considered to be the most advanced fighter jet in the world. No Westerner had ever seen the legendary technology and mechanics of the super-secret jet, which flew faster than any American planes could. And it had been clocked at Mach 3.2 during the Yom Kippur War. It was like this mystery uh, plane that everybody was in awe of. Western analysis of the people, sh- um, but once they did have the so, so many lands, and uh, everybody's like, "Oh my God, it's a MiG 25," you know. And the and the uh, Western uh, analysts and mechanics. Uh, started taking it apart and showed that uh, though that the MiG-25 was actually only a short-range high-speed interceptor with limited maneuverability incapable of air-to-air combat. So basically, it could fly high and fast, and that was it. And, and as straight. a result, yeah, America's basically. Air Force reoriented the allocation of major segments of their military funding because they thought they were having to develop a whole new, uh, you know, area of of jet technology when in fact they didn't. So that was. Amazing that he that he defected and brought the plane, but it was more amazing what they found out about that plane. Um, and then the, the the fun part of that story is that Dad becomes his handler, and uh, and this is when we were back living in the United States. And you know, all of a sudden, Dad, you know, Dad would often bring home foreigners, you know, from work for you know he was in the foreign service. That's what we thought, and that's why he brought the you know people back. But Victor was a little different because he was younger and he was handsome and he was funny and he didn't speak very good English and our parents told us that his name was Victor Schmidt when in fact his name was Victor Belenko and that he was East German because he could speak some passable uh, German. And Dad uh, was his handler overseeing his months-long debriefings, but he was also tasked with helping him to assimilate into American culture and he he hung around our Washington, D.C. suburban house a lot and was funny about what he knew and what he didn't know, like he thought the toilet brush was to wash his back, you know. <laughs> and then when we found out, we were all laughing, and he was just, he was funny. 
Um, and it was difficult for him to assimilate into American culture as it is for most, uh, you know, most Soviet defectors. They don't know what they're going to find here. Like when dad took him to a grocery store, he wouldn't believe it. You know, he was used to lines out the door and, and uh, you know, bins that had like one rotten cabbage in it, as opposed to an American grocery store that was just overflowing in abundance. And he made my father drive him around to five other grocery stores before he started to believe that this is really what you have, you know, in America. And um, but then at one point he had to face what all defectors have to face, which is the point when, you know, his debriefers have gotten all the information out of them that they have and they don't have any more questions and you you know you were a hero your your ego being stroked every single day we need you what else can you tell us you're so wonderful oh your information so great and then one day that's over and you really do have to figure out a life for yourself and one of the stories that I like uh, from from that part of my book is um, when he decides to go down to Florida to enroll in an intense English language course and uh, he meets a young South American woman and they you know their relationship blooms into a full love affair but you know she can't stay in the United States she has to return to her country and it was just too much for him to you know take up his stakes and move to another country as well so they parted ways and it triggered uh, it was like a breaking point for him it triggered this um, you know homesickness in him and all of a sudden he kind of went crazy he told me because I had a meeting you know I did meet with him um, you know, we had a wonderful reunion and, and met, and he told me the story, and it was just, uh, he freaked out, and he just felt sad and alone and, you know, not connected, and he said he was going to go up to the Soviet embassy and say, guess what, I do want to come home to my motherland, and he drove all the way up to the D.C. area, but he had one stop to make before he got to the Soviet embassy, which was at my father's house, and he's banging on the door in the middle of the night at 4 a.m., and he comes downstairs and the, my brothers come downstairs and my, my father sends my brothers back upstairs and brings him inside and basically talks him down and says you cannot go to the Soviet embassy yes you feel you know uh, you feel homesick right now you don't think you'll ever fit it fit in but you will but you cannot go to to the embassy and one of the things that Victor said to me when we met and he was so emotional he said your father saved my life he says I was crazy I was out of my mind and your father saved my life and he often told me that he thought my father was his father because you know he had a largely absent father and my father was just you know the perfect person for someone like him who's, who was trying to you know assimilate into the country and eventually um, my father my father died uh, and a couple years later, my mother got a uh, uh, birth announcement, and they had named their new baby. He got married to an American woman, and they'd named their new baby Paul after my father, which was very touching to all of us. So my favorite part of that story you didn't mention was that you're a teenager at this time, and you've got a bunch of sisters. And uh, Victor, being a young, hotshot fighter pilot, uh, perhaps took to one of your sisters more than others, and how your father's reaction to that was pretty funny. <laughs> you know, well, he was cute. He was 28. The rest of us were in our early 20s. He was 28. He was, you know, muscly. He was funny. We all, I think, we all kind of had crushes on him. I certainly did. Um, but, but he started flirting with my oldest sister Maria, 
and it did not take long before my father made sure to shut that down. I think the last thing he wanted was for my sister to fall in love with a Soviet defector who still had the danger of possible kidnapping, you know, and, and other um, things that could happen to him as part of his life. And uh, I'm sure he also took uh, 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 took Victor aside and said, uh, no way. <laughs> well, another fun part of this. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it didn't last so long. Yes. Another fun part of the story is the Soviets would eventually get their plane back, not necessarily how they expected to. No. In fact, what happened is, the, of course, they wanted to analyze every detail about the, the plane. And so they, you know, it stayed in Japan and they uh, took it apart piece by piece and fully analyzed the whole thing. And the Soviets were demanding their plane back and, you know, they were buzzing the Jap- Japanese fishing boats and, you know, making trouble, you know, with their diplomats. And uh, finally, eight weeks later, they did get their plane back, but in pieces. They were delivered to the port uh, in Japan and put onto a uh, Soviet uh, ship in five great big huge containers with all the pieces. And that's how they got their plane back. <laughs> nice little sense of humor there for that. Yes. Um, so let's, let's look at the end of this story a little bit. I think there's some key issues here. I'm, I was surprised to see, and I actually didn't know a lot about this before, I was surprised to see how much Angleton's team, talk about the Black Hats, talk about the people that Angleton had groomed under him, could have potentially led to at least the initial suspicion that Polyakov was was spying for the United States. Yes. Um, in fact, it, it was really an unfortunate thing how... Um, how the, they were all very dedicated to Angleton, and they, you know, even after he was fired, they uh, wanted, you know, Angleton just did not believe that um, Poyakov was not, you know, bona fide, that he wasn't the real thing. And uh, so Angleton was fired in 1974 by Bill Colby and became a, an embittered man. And, and he, you know, and yet he found ways to continue to try to out those he still believed were provocations. And one of those ways were through uh, journalists in the press. Um, Edward J. Epstein had recently published a book. He was a journalist who had recently published a book about uh, Lee Harvey Oswald and Kennedy called Legend. And during the course of his um, research, he found out the name of... Um, of a, a Soviet asset in the UN mission in the 60s who was codenamed Fedora. And in that uh, article, uh, and so and that information was then showed up in an article in New York Magazine because he was promoting his book. And he wrote about the fact that in the 1960s, the FBI had um, an asset named Fedora. And then he said, and two other Soviets, which were in quotes, who joined Fedora in supplying the FBI with information. Then, in a subsequent New York Times uh, item, he revealed Polyakov's FBI codename Top Hat. Not that it was Polyakov, but just his codename Top Hat. Um, it was, and it was w- widely believed that Angleton um, was the one who, who did, you know, who did this, because uh, because nobody would have done it without his permission, right? Um, this started the KGB on a hunt for Fedora and Top Hat. Um, you know, they didn't know who they were behind the, 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 
the, the code names, but they knew where they'd been, that they're part of the UN mission, the era, that sort of thing. Um, but, this, this is the part of the story where, where two infamous Americans uh, come into play, and one of them could have ended Polyakov's operation long before it eventually does, and that's Robert Hansen, who is the FBI agent turned traitor, uh, who actually told the GRU about him long, long, long before he was finally arrested for, for doing what he was doing. Well, yeah, you know, a- after these breaches come out by, you know, Epstein, so that's bad enough, right? So here are these breaches for, with his code name and everything. And then in early 1979 in New York City, Robert Hansen walks into the Broadway office of Amtorg, which is the Soviet trading organiza- organization he knows serves as a front for the GRU, and for money offered up Polyakov's identity as a spy for the United States. Now, Polyakov doesn't know this, and the GRU doesn't want to know it. They don't want to believe it. They, uh, they did not want to uh, repeat this information to their KGB rivals, as it would make them look bad, and eventually Polyakov, um, you know, it, it would make them look bad, and, uh, you know, they wanted to sweep it all under the rug. They just could not believe that a decorated war hero general um, would, you know, spy against his own country, and instead they kind of suspected uh, Robert Hansen of being a provocation, you know, coming in to try to make trouble. But they couldn't be sure, right? But then now you have a combination of the fedora, the top hat problem, and then also David Martin in 1980, when uh, Polyakov is still back in Delhi in his second tour, uh, writes the book Wilderness of Mirrors, and he's sort of picking up where Epstein left off and gives out the uh, code names, the, the CIA cryptonyms, Scotch and Bourbon. Scotch was for Alexei Kulak, and Bur- Bourbon was for Polyakov. Now they have too many pieces of the puzzle. Right. You know, they, they've got a, you know, the, the ramparts of this cover are just, are crumbling, and they just have too many pieces of the, of the puzzle. So they, you know, call him back. Now, now the, the, the um, KGB does, uh, ostensibly for a meeting of uh, Southeast Asia resident Torah chiefs, but really to try to get them back, you know, to, so that they could analyze and keep them there. And um, they gave them all medical exams and told Polyakov that uh, he was unfit, you know, his health was unfit for going back to India. So he started figuring out that he was under suspicion. But um, and, and then you get Alder Games, and the, yes. the, the, the and complete Alder, Alder, bottom falls out. <laughs> yeah, well, see, what happens is that they decide to just go ahead and sweep all these issues that are going on with Polyakov under the rug, and they let him retire, and he's retired for five years, living happily out at his dasha with his granddaughter and, you know, you know, hunting and doing his woodworking and everything. And then Aldrich Ames comes along, you know, and Aldrich Ames um, did it for money. You know, he gets this job and, um, you know, had had access to this information and had, had met a um, very pretty young Colombian cultural uh, attaché when he when they were both in Mexico, and they uh, you know they get married and she spends a lot of money and wants a fancier lifestyle and he gets more and more in debt and finally he's just you know this is what's this is his option he decides to 
uh, give information over to the KGB, and he sets up a lunch date with Sergei Chubakin, who's actually an arms specialist, who avoided him for months, but eventually in April 85, they uh, set up a lunch date, and when Chubakin didn't show up, uh, Ames walked Ames, who had been drinking vodka, he was nervous and he got very drunk, decided to walk to the Soviet embassy and leave a note for the head of the resident, residentura and letting him know that he knew who his code name was and that he wanted $50,000 in order to give up information about some spies he knew about. And they gave him the $50,000. And after that, Ames decided to impress them even more and walked out of the CIA um, in June of 1985 with a huge bag of information they hadn't even asked for any which included all of the names of every Soviet asset he knew in every operation um, and the CIA uh, dubbed it the big dump because it was just so much information and it included Polyakov's identity and that was really the beginning of the end for Polyakov. And, and one name we haven't mentioned that, that kind of wraps this up somewhat nicely is uh, someone that worked on the Polyakov case with your father, uh, someone we actually know here very well at the Spy Museum, Sandy Grimes, uh, who is a, you know, one of the most extraordinary officers in CIA history. She was uh, very intimately involved with the Polyakov case, was devastated when he was wrapped up and executed or he disappeared, but got a little bit of satisfaction from being also intimately involved in sending Aldrich Ames to prison for the rest of his life. Absolutely. You know, the the thing about uh, Sandy is she actually was the longest-serving case officer on the Polyakov case, you know, from when she first, when she first started in 1971 all the way through to uh, 1980 when he kind of disappeared from the scene. And she just had a a dedication to him that was just unusual and very beautiful and would always wanted to protect him and uh, you know there was a an instance where a new head of the soviet division wanted to come in and uh, make poyakov uh had gone under again in moscow and uh and he had come in and said we must make contact with him and sandy was like, he has asked us not to, and it's way too dangerous, and the new head of the division said, you must do it, you must do it, and it kind of turned into a fiasco, and it was Sandy who kept trying to protect Polyakov, and eventually, when it became clear that there was a mole in, in, the, uh, in the agency, she was about to retire, and somebody came to her and said, would you join Jean Verdefe's team, and she said, you've just made me the only offer I could not, yeah. you know, to turn away and because she was so dedicated you know for for the you know welfare of Polyakov and she was put her nose to the grindstone analyzed all the um, evidence and was the one who eventually actually put two and two together to show the proof of you know, the money coming into um, Aldrich Ames's accounts and his meetings with Sergei Chuvakin when he would go and, you know, give all of this information. She's the one who put the two together and said, Rick is a goddamn Soviet spy. <laughs> and and it went, you know, and it went from there. You know, that's when they were really able to launch the FBI uh, investigation and they finally caught him. But it was really couldn't have been done without Sandy, who was very, very dedicated to the case. 
We'd like to thank our friends at Harry's Bloom That and Sherry's Berries. Remember, you can get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel by going to harrys.com slash spycast. You can get a free premium design bouquet, free vase, and treats by going to bloomthat.com slash spycast, and freshly dipped strawberries starting at just $19.99 plus shipping, or you can double the berries for just $10 more. Go to berries.com, use the code spycast when you click on the mic at the top right corner. So... We've, we've left out a ton of stuff. I didn't want to give the, you know, the listener the entire book. There's so much more in this book worth looking at. The co- book is called Spies in the Family, an American Spy Master, His Russian Crown Jewel, and the Friendship that Helped End the Cold War. The author is Eva Dillon. Uh, thank you so much, Eva, for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Thank you, Vince. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at INTL Spycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.